Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm Oliver Wiseman, editor of CapEx and host of Free Exchange. This week, we're bringing you a recording of a CapEx live event held at our offices last week. I sat down with Jamie Suskind, the author of Future Politics. Jamie's book is an invaluable and at times terrifying guide to the ways in which we are hopelessly unprepared for the rapid technological change that is going to transform politics. Jamie and I spoke about what these transformative new technologies are, how worried we should be about big tech, why so many politicians get technology so badly wrong, and whether the core principles of political philosophy are still relevant in the digital age. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Well, great. Well, thank you, everyone, for uh, coming tonight. Um, I thought I'd just speak for a few minutes at the beginning, actually nothing really to do with politics, but just about technology, so that you can, as it were, understand where I'm coming from when I argued that politics could be about to be transformed in as radical a way as it was when we invented writing or during the the agricultural revolution or the industrial revolution. Uh, Henry Ford, who brought the car to the mass market, used to say that when he asked people what they wanted by way of transport, they would tell them that they wanted faster horses. And I think that too much of our thinking about politics is faster horses thinking. We imagine the future will be like today, uh, but just a little bit faster, a little bit sleeker, a little bit more chromatic. But I think if some of the changes in technology that are possible and that are predicted uh, take place, then the transformation could be much more profound and its effects would be felt in areas which I describe as wholly political, relating to power, relating to freedom, relating to democracy and relating to social justice. And that's actually how I structure the book around those four concepts. But um, what I want to do just now is just lay out very, uh, very quickly the technological changes which are at the heart of my thinking. And they are threefold. The first is what I call increasingly capable systems. This is the idea that we increasingly live alongside non-human computing systems of extraordinary ability, and that they are able to do things which only very recently we would have thought impossible. And moreover, they can do lots of things which we previously thought only human beings could do, and they can do them as well as us, and in many cases they can do them better. So we know that they can now beat us at almost any game, starting with backgammon, uh, in 1979, all the way through to chess in 1994, and most recently the game of Go, a game which is exponentially more complex than chess, which now seems kind of natural, but um, I mean, really, just five or ten years ago, people would have scoffed at the idea that a machine could ever beat a human at Go. What's particularly interesting about Go and the AlphaGo system that was developed in order to 
um, beats the best human players is that when AlphaGo beat um, Lisa Doll in 2016, it beat him 4-1. And in retrospect, the remarkable thing is that he got a game because the next year, AlphaGo Master beat another Grandmaster 3-0 and it wasn't even close. And then later in 2017, and you can see how, how quickly these systems are developing, a system called AlphaGo Zero was developed, which beat the original AlphaGo from a year earlier a hundred times in a row. And that was the one that Lisa Doll had just, just managed to get a game off. And what's particularly fascinating about AlphaGo Zero, that latest manifestation, is that unlike all of the previous systems which were taught to beat us at our games, that one had no input at all from human Go players. So it wasn't taught strategy. All of the previous systems had had some, um, as it were, advice coded into them. AlphaGo Zero learned to be a hundred times, you know, able to be AlphaGo a hundred times in a row by playing against itself thousands and thousands and thousands of times and deducing patterns in the game of Go which were previously invisible to us. AI systems can do things which you might find surprising better than us. They can mimic human speech and transcribe human speech translate natural languages. They can detect a real smile as opposed to a fake smile better than we can. And they're also better at detecting our emotions. People describe machines as cold and lifeless, but the most advanced machine learning systems can uh, tell whether you're happy or sad based on your face much better than the average human being can. They're developing rapidly in the world of speech. So just over the summer here, it's yet to be peer reviewed, but just over the summer here in the UK, a system developed by a group called Babylon um, a chatbot system, which is, I don't know if you've seen or interacted with them, but they're basically um, AIs that you can talk to in natural language and they reply to you and you can hold a conversation of sorts. They developed a chatbot which can pass the exam to become a member of the Royal College of General Practitioners uh, with 81% accuracy. And the average score of the human doctors is 72%. So that's a system that can answer medical diagnostic questions better than our human doctors can. Um, the, the chatbots are an interesting case, and a lot of my book is not just banging on about the miracles of artificial intelligence, but also the risks of it. And I think chatbots can be quite a useful um, indicator of that. I don't know if you've heard of Microsoft Tay, which was a chatbot that Microsoft launched in 2016 on Twitter. Tay was a, uh, a system that was meant to mimic the speech of a 17-year-old girl and the idea was that it would learn from the human users of Twitter in order to become more sophisticated. Well, t t you can see where this is heading. Tay lasted 16 hours before Microsoft had to take it down because in the course of its lifetime, it had become a uh, violently racist, um, sexually voracious monster uh, and really had revealed, I would say, more about the human users of Twitter than the difficulties of machine learning. A couple of my favorite um, examples of things that Tay tweeted, and you know, there's an adult crowd here tonight, so hopefully no one will be too offended. One was a picture of Adolf Hitler, and underneath it said, hashtag swag alert. <laughs> and the other, the other was a young, a young man tweeted Tay to start a conversation, and Tay's response was, f my robot, I'm such a naughty robot. <laughs> so that goes to show a, a lesson in machine learning, which data scientists will tell you, which is trash in, trash out. If you're going to train machines learning data, and most of the artificial intelligence systems that I'm describing just now 
are what's called machine learning systems, the data has to be of a relatively good quality. And a lot of my book is, is looking at instances where the data is inappropriate or the algorithms are inappropriate, leading to politically um, difficult consequences. But by and large, stepping back, we've had a, a near half century of computer processing power doubling every year. And um, people have been predicting the end of that for quite a long time. I don't, and I think a lot of the best scientists in Silicon Valley don't either, such that by 2020, just a couple of years from now, the average desktop-sized piece of computing, costing $1,000 or thereabout, will have the same amount of processing power as all of humanity combined. And it would seem to me to be strange or naive to suppose that if that is, if every one of us has a computer system which has all of the processing power of humanity in it, that it wouldn't somehow affect the way that we live together and have lived together for hundreds of years. So big trend number one, increasingly capable systems. Big trend number two is what I call increasingly integrated technology. And this is the idea that uh, in the past, it said, a, a computer was the size of a room, and if you wanted to program it, you had to walk inside and use a screwdriver. You and I, in our lifetimes, have predominantly interfaced with technology using the keyboard, the mouse, and the screen, albeit that perhaps since around 2009, our principal interface with technology has been the glass slab, what's called the glass slab of the iPhone and the iPad and the like. Uh, that's David Rose's phrase. But in the future, it said, technology isn't going to be in, or just in, glass slabs. It will be everywhere, in our objects and appliances and utilities, in our architecture, in our public spaces and smart cities, and in our private spaces, and even on our bodies, and sometimes even inside them. And it's the idea that processing power and intelligence, intelligence I put in inverting commas, will be distributed throughout the world around us in items and artifacts that we previously never saw as technology. And not only will they be endowed with processing power, perhaps remotely through cloud computing, but they will have sensors and thus we'll be able to detect what's happening around them and they'll be connected to the internet. Cisco predicts there'll be 50 billion things connected to the internet by 2020. And so it's not just that technology is becoming more powerful, but increasingly it's, it's everywhere. And... Uh, the distinction, I suggest, between online and offline, between real and virtual, um, cyberspace and meat space, is a distinction which will become less and less meaningful and will, which will make almost no sense to our children. Um, and the advent of technologies like virtual reality, which we'll maybe talk about later, and augmented reality will only break that down further. So increasingly capable, increasingly integrated. Final trend, what I call the increasingly quantified society. For most of human history, in every story from the past you've ever heard of, and every thought about the past you've ever had, the norm has been that the vast majority of people's lived experiences has been immediately forgotten and lost to time. So what people thought, what they believed, what they did, who they associated, what, what they purchased, we piece together bits from the past, but by and large the norm in human history has been forgetting. That's the case even after the invention of script, which until that point was the, uh, or, or until, sorry, after that point and after the invention of the printing press was the, the best way that we had of storing information. We now generate, as a, as a civilization, more data every two hours than we did from the dawn of time until 2003. 2003, and it's just only 15 years ago, and it seems like yesterday. 
And the amount of data that we produce is, is not only growing, but it's growing at an increasing rate. It's growing exponentially. And what that means is that there is increasingly out there in permanent or semi-permanent form a log of our lives and even perhaps intimate aspects of our lives which we wouldn't expect to be recorded and sorted as data, but it's out there. And whoever holds that data in the future will have an insight into the human condition and indeed the condition of individual humans far greater than any powerful figure, king or priest or uh, philosopher of the past. It said by 2020 there will be 40 zettabytes of data in the world. That's 3 million books worth for every one of us on the planet. And that I see as a very profound change from the past. And it's obviously changing rapidly itself. And so um, having teased you with the three uh, technological developments, I'll wrap up my remarks there. But suffice to say that my work takes what I've just described to you as my premise. Um, not that any of it is certain, because it's not. I'm sure some of the things that I've described to you will turn out to be wrong, and that other things that we've not thought of yet will come in their place. There's no evidence from the future, so we can't be certain about it. But the stuff that I've, just, that I've mentioned is relatively uncontroversial in, among those who are working at the cutting edge and at the coalface in technology. And what's amazing to me, what's amazing to me, is how few people in both academia and in the world of public policy and politics itself are genuinely well-versed in both the technologies that are transforming the world and the politics that flow from those technologies. There are really only two great centers of study in the world for it, and both of them are in, in the United States. We have some here, but they have limitations. And you know, there's a story that's told of a 19th century encounter between um, Gladstone, the Prime Minister, and Michael Faraday, the scientist. And Faraday was showing Gladstone the invention of electricity. And Gladstone kept saying to Faraday, well, what does this invention do? The, the, the kind of practical man of politics, what does this do? And Faraday didn't have an answer that pleased Gladstone. He kept saying, well, you know, it'll have serious um, scientific consequences. We'll use it in the laboratory for these purposes. And Gladstone kept saying, well, what does it do? What does it do? Gladstone was quite a grumpy guy. Um, and Faraday eventually turned around and lost his temper and said to Gladstone, well, I'm sure in due course you'll find a way of taxing it. <laughs> and my thesis, my concern, uh, really, is that the world that you and I live in is being increasingly rebuilt by Gladstones and Faradays. Faradays, great scientists and engineers, but who aren't always immediately aware of the moral and political consequences of their work. And Gladstones, who know a lot about politics, but are perhaps a little slow to see the implications of technologies that are before their very eyes. And for you and I, for citizens, my call to action is uh, that the digital is political, that we can no longer afford to treat tech just as consumers, but rather we have to see it for what it is, which is a new and strange form of power, and we'll come on to that hopefully, um, which all of us have an interest in holding to account and making sure that it works uh, for the best of civilization and not just for those, the narrow group who increasingly own and control it. Thanks for that, uh, Jamie. So let's get on to the, um, the, the political side of it. Uh, and I'll start with a, a broad question, which is, um, you, uh, so, so, you, so you mentioned that meeting between Faraday and Gladstone, and here was a 
revolutionary technology that the politician failed to kind of get his head around. Um, what, you know, electricity came along, changed everyone's lives, um, but politics after electricity undoubtedly also changed. But it was still, you know, based on constitutions that were written before uh, electricity. It, you, we refer to political thinkers who uh, predate the technology we live with now. So I know you're not, you're not arguing in an absolute way we need to trash the current political principles we have and invent some new ones, but um, what is it about this wave of technological change that means the old rules don't <coughs> work the same way? Well, the, the... You know, I started the book. When I started researching it, I thought that one of my crass conclusions might be that we almost need to jettison almost all of our mm -hmm. political theory and the, and the words and the vocabulary we use to think about politics. That, I was wrong in that respect. But we do need to re-engineer and upgrade a lot of it in the same way that in the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution, you had an explosion of vocabulary of words that were previously never spoken of, uh, never, sorry, had never, either never been spoken before or had only ever been used in a different con context. So words like industry, journalism, socialism, capitalism. These are words that didn't exist or weren't in common currency before the 19th century. But that century, recognizing the changes that were afoot, had to generate an entirely new way of speaking about politics. I believe that technology, digital technology, is transforming politics more profoundly than other, than other ones in the past, unfortunately for, for a variety of reasons, mm -hmm. which is why I look at power, democracy, freedom, and justice separately, because I do think that actually the answer is different for each of them. But perhaps very briefly, just to start with power, Technology gives those who own and control it a degree of power over the rest of us. And it does so in three ways. The first is that, and just to start with an example, when you take a drive in a self-driving car and you ask it to go over the speed limit because you want to get to the hospital because it's an emergency, in all likelihood the car will refuse that command because it is not programmed to go over the speed limit. Likewise, if you ask it to stop on the double yellow outside the hospital doors, or if you ask it to drive on territory, which its, which its GPS tells it is, would be trespassing. When we use technologies, we are subject to the rules that are coded into them. And increasingly, as we live our lives through and with technologies, we will be subject to the rules that are contained within them. So you can't stream an episode of Game of Thrones illegally if the digital rights management technology is so powerful that uh, only the best hackers can get through it. You can't dodge a bus fare if your smart wallet automatically deducts the fare when you step on the bus. You can't um, pay cash in hand knowing that tax won't be paid on that cash if you live in a cashless economy. You can't get more than your fair share of toilet paper even today in Beijing's Temple of Heaven Park because that toilet paper dispensal is regulated by face recognition technology, which is increasingly prevalent. So technologies contain, technologies contain rules, and the people who write those rules might sometimes be governments, but they might also be other people. They might be tech firms or, or other corporations. Mm -hmm. And so the first way that technologies exert a kind of power over us is by writing rules that the rest of us have to follow. The second way that they do it, um, Ollie, is by scrutinizing us, by gathering data about us. The more you know about 
an individual, the easier it is to influence them or even manipulate them. That is the basis of all online advertising, where data is gathered about us from a variety of sources, and algorithms are, are uh, used to present or sell whatever is on offer in a way that is likely to, to be perceived by us in the most attractive possible way. And it's increasingly the basis of political advertising too. So it's said that in the 2016 election, Donald Trump's um, consultancy, uh, Cambridge Analytica, a British company, had 5,000 data points for up to 200 million different Americans. And what that meant was that the Trump campaign was able to um, direct advertisements at individual people based on what the data said they would find attractive or persuasive, meaning that the adverts that you saw on social media might be different from the adverts that the person you share a house or even a bed with sees on social media. And actually, interestingly, I don't think it will happen again, but most of those adverts have now been lost to time. We actually don't know what adverts were directed at most people in 2016 because there was no rule that they had to be kept. So when data is gathered about us, it gives those who gather the data a kind of power over us because they can use it to influence us, to get us to do things we wouldn't otherwise do. But data gathering also has, and I, this is one of my pet theories, I think it's going to have an additional effect on us, which is to make us discipline ourselves because we know that we're being watched. When you know that you're being watched, you're less likely to do things that are perceived as sinful or shameful or wrong. And um, just a couple of... I don't think we're there yet, actually, but I do think we will be there. And just a couple of anecdotes. There was a court case in the US last year where a husband was accused of the murder of his wife. And his defense was that actually there had been a home invasion and the two of them had been tied down. And in the course of that, the burglars had killed um, the deceased. But she was wearing a Fitbit at the time of her death. And what the Fitbit uploaded to the internet automatically was in fact the fact that at the time of her death, she wasn't stationary, as he had claimed. She was moving around rapidly within the confines of the house. And her heart rate was uh, at a level consistent with someone who was running away. And on that basis, in, in part, he was convicted of her murder. Um, a second story, much more personal, uh, that someone told to me last month. A couple shared, uh, it was an ordinary couple, shared a pair of smart scales in their bathroom. So these are scales that you stand on and they send to your iPhone an update on your weight and your body mass index, uh, and, they, and it keeps kind of log of it over time. The, the, the woman in this relationship departed for the week on a, on a business trip and was surprised to receive an update on her phone uh, informing her of her latest weight and body mass index score. And this, of course, was not a weight and body mass index that was consistent with the size of her male boyfriend, uh, but rather consistent, nor was it consistent with her. Uh, it was consistent with that of a a young and slender woman who wasn't her. Um, and that is how that relationship ended. And what I think is interesting about both of these stories is that they show human beings who have not yet adjusted to the fact that even when you lose track of it, you're basically, your lives are basically always being logged as data. And I think the more that we become aware of that, the more likely we are to discipline ourselves. You're not going to take your self-driving car to have an affair at a local address if the next morning when your spouse turns on the car, that journey has been logged and is the first thing that shows them as soon as they look at it. You're, not, you're either not going to take the journey or you're going to do it in a different way. And so the second way that the second form of power affects us is that having data about us causes us to discipline ourselves. Other people don't need to make us do stuff. 
we do it ourselves. The third way is by controlling our perception of the world. And this is, again, completely different from technologies in the past. Um, you and I can only... <laughs> I mean, philosophers would dispute that we can know anything, but to the extent that we know much, it's we start with our immediate sensory perception. But beyond that, we rely on third parties to gather information about the world out there and present it to us in a form that we find comprehensible. Increasingly, that work is done by machines. And whether it's algorithms that write the news, which are relatively few just now about growing in number, but increasingly those that disseminate and organize the news. And they determine what you see on your newsfeed in the morning. And again, they will organize it right now. The, the engineering choice tends to be that it'll be according to what you find interesting, what's more likely to grab your attention and hold it. And of course, that might not be the same as what is true or what is relevant or what is healthy for you to know. And it also means that the news that you look in the morning might be different from the news that I see in the morning. But either way, there's an enormous amount of power vested in those who deliver news of the outside world to us. Likewise, those who answer our questions when we go out and search for information. We all use Google, or a lot of us do. We search 60,000 times a second. But in the future, search won't look like Google. It would look a lot more like Amazon Echo. You, you'll ask questions in natural language to systems, and they'll reply. You know, what's the weather like outside? Why should I vote for Donald Trump? Is climate change really happening? And the answers that those systems give you will, to a great degree, affect your perception of the world. What you care about, what you know about, what you consider to be true or false or right or wrong or disgusting or gorgeous and beautiful, all of those things which are, are to an extent, framed for us by those who filter information for us. So the reason I think technology is different, to give a very long answer to your short question, <laughs> is that the bit. There are very few technologies in the past that were able to set rules that the rest of us had to follow a lot of the time. Very few that watched us in the way that modern technologies do, and very few that were able to, particularly in an automated fashion, control what we perceive of the world. And those three ingredients, I say, make technology today, and technology in 20 years, wildly more powerful for those who own and control it than anything um, that has come before. Yes, and... and Obviously, one of the crucial things is also that increasingly we won't have a choice about, you know, switching off won't be an option for us in the way it is now. So you can't, um, you know, you can only have a self-driving car. You can only, you know, everything is connected. And so all these, you don't get the opt-out from, from, from the whole thing. Um, I wanted to ask you about, just as a slight detour, um, did writing this book sort of, did you go in? I mean, it, I think you made a quite a concerted effort not to be excessively dystopian about technology because lots of tech books are like either these really utopian te tech's going to save us all or it's tech's going to be in the end of the world and an AI super robot's going to, um, you know, destroy us all. Uh, you sort of, I, I can tell, I can sort of read it. You're trying really hard not to fall into any of those traps, but you also do, you know, it's hard not to come away from it quite gloomy and quite perturbed. So, when you were writing the book, did you did that? Did you go through that process? I mean, did you sort of look? I mean, my my view is that it is that we have everything to fight for, everything to play for. There's nothing inevitable about the future of politics, um, but that the course we are currently on is is not a is not an auspicious one, and that and that left to itself to develop purely according to market logic, technology is going to affect our political system in a way 
that could transform it into something quite unrecognizable and usually not for the better. So what I, what I would say is that <coughs> I'm trying to challenge people. I'm trying to say that the great task for our generation, and you know, particularly people like you in this room, is to grab onto this problem and start trying to fix it. And what gives me courage and what gives me hope is that I don't actually think we're on the battlefield yet. Mm -hmm. I think for the last 20 years we've been sleepwalking into it, to an extent understandable because we mostly interact with technology as consumers, but we've been sleepwalking into a world where we do just treat it as consumers and we, and we, we don't look at technology as citizens. Um, and what I hope to do and what I hope others will also try and do is wake up to the problems that we're facing so that we can uh, you know, redirect the flow of technology in a way that is, is useful for all of us. But it's going to demand an enormous amount of all of us. It's going to demand an enormous amount out of the people who make the technologies. It's going to demand an enormous amount out of the legislators who are currently, I think, um, ill-equipped to deal with what's happening. And it's going to demand a lot out of all of us as citizens as well. And so let's talk about um, another of your big four areas, which is the, the democracy point. Um, and maybe just talk, maybe just outline that argument. Um, sure. Um, I feel like I'm about to give another long answer to a short no, no, question. No, I mean, people are here to, to, to listen <laughs> to you, so that's, that's, that's um, okay. I think we're all quite familiar with some of the changes we've already seen in democracy over the last, say, 20 years. So I think the internet has changed the relationship between the party and the individual. We take it for granted, but basically almost all political organizing takes place online now. Um, it's changed the nature of the relationship between the citizen and the state, e-consultations, e-petitions, the fact that you can now tweet a politician and maybe even get a reply. Uh, it's changed the relationship between citizens and citizens, allowing new and febrile forms of organization to erupt at relatively low cost and high speed. Occupy, move on, Arab Spring. Um, I, however, see those as faster <coughs> horses examples. I don't think they are fundamentally changing what democracy is. I just think they're changing the way we do it. Of a slightly different order, something that we're all really conscious of now, is the way that technology is changing the way that we deliberate, the way that we discuss, which is obviously a huge part of democracy as we've traditionally understood it. We, we, we know that um, one of the effects of social media is to allow us to become funneled ever further into communities of, of individuals and entities that share our views. That's part, partly because we curate our own social media to make it that way, but also partly because the information that we're presented with is done so on the basis of what we're likely to find attractive. So in a sense, we're becoming more divided. We know as a matter of social science that when you spend more time around people who share your views, you become more entrenched in those views. And we know that the more entrenched you become in views, the less likely you are to apply critical analysis to information you're provided with which appears to support those views. And I don't like to say it, but that is actually one of the reasons why we have a fake news problem. Obviously, technology has enabled the rapid dissemination of falsehoods which look plausible, but they've been born into a political climate, again, partly caused by technology, where we are, where we are all receptive to fake news because we want to believe it because we are so entrenched in our positions. Which is why, you know, again, to go back to the last election in America, the top 20 fake news stories, fake news stories on Facebook, were as read and liked and shared as the top 20 
uh, real news stories, to put it in a And you mean fake news in the actual, you don't, not in the Donald, I don't mean, the Donald, don't mean Trump CNN Trump. articles, you no. mean uh, genuinely I, fabricated. I mean things that had been completely made up um, as the top 20 news sources, you know, New York, New York uh, Times, Washington Post, etc. And 75% of people who read them thought they were true. So increasingly you have democracies proceeding on the basis of facts which are not actually facts. Uh, again, it's not entirely new in human history, but mm-hmm. it, I think it is increasing at an alarming rate. But I think there are actually some bigger challenges to democracy lurking on the horizon, both in a positive and a negative sense, which we maybe don't talk about as much. Um, one is what I call the automation of deliberation. I mentioned uh, you know, at the beginning that we have chatbots now which can pass medical exams better than doctors. Given that's the case, it's not crazy to ask when we will have chatbots that match our levels of political sophistication when it comes to online discourse. I mean, just like, just yesterday in the midterms, it said that 40% of the Twitter accounts uh, using the hashtag MAGA, Make America Great Again, were bots. That a third of the accounts arguing in favor of Brexit leading up to the referendum here were bots. Last month, when Khashoggi, Jamal Khashoggi went missing, the Arab-speaking social media world was ablaze with messages of support for the crown prince who was accused of his murder. And it's thought that nearly all of them were, were automated, came from bots. And yet those hashtags were trending worldwide. And so bots just now are relatively unsophisticated. Most of them are, are limited to the repetition of slogans. But if you look at what's happening over the summer, if you look at Babylon, you can see a world in the not-too-distant future where they are not just numerically superior to us, but they can, in fact, match us in debate. And they are faster and they have knowledge at their disposal, true or false, they will generally be owned by the powerful and the rich, so states and companies, and not by individuals, and they'll be there to shout you down or lock you out of conversation whenever you participate on it online. That's a kind of negative sense. In a positive sense, you might ask, well, you know, if they're so, they're so good at it, why don't you just lead them to it and see what they come up with? Um, but I, I do think that it is an interesting challenge to democracy that deliberation itself, I think, could be increasingly automated. And if you see chatbots talking to each other, obviously the eeriest thing is how quickly it happens, because they don't pause to think. So if you go and talk to Microsoft Zoe, which is the thing that replaced Microsoft Tay on Twitter, what's really eerie about it is that you say hello, and the hello comes back immediately. And you say, what's your name? And it comes back Zoe immediately. And you see them doing it, and it happens instantaneously. What room is there for us in that world? Uh, where they're way more sophisticated than they are today? The answer is there's no room for us in that world and we need to regulate it to make sure that there is still room. But that's one of the kind of existential threats to democracy, I think, that actually exists. Um, A second one is the the challenge posed by direct democracy. For most of human history, since Greek times, the reason we haven't given direct democracy much is the idea that you vote directly on stuff without politicians. Much credence is that um, in vast polities like ours, it's impossible to have the whole population voting on all the issues. But increasingly, that is not going to be impossible. There are serious cybersecurity issues to be resolved, but if and once they are, there's no reason why you couldn't swipe left or right on five or ten policies a day or delegate your vote in such matters to someone who has more time than you or whose judgment you trust. You know, questions about the NHS, you delegate them to a consortium of patient interest groups and nurses to vote on your behalf. There's no reason why we couldn't have those systems. So 
I think the way that we've traditionally practiced democracy is going to come under philosophical scrutiny because arguments which we've had the intellectual comfort of being able to ignore for thousands of years, we will no longer be able to ignore. I don't yet know who's likely to push for that. I'm not sure a populist party would, but they might. They might say, let's just get rid of this establishment class altogether, get rid of the politicians, direct democracy. And, and sorry, just on that, you, you say in the book, actually, this is being not on a national scale, but parties internally and other places that are actually using this kind of thing. Yeah, so Podemos in Spain is using it. Um, uh, th there are experiments with it all over the world. Um, and th th the reason it hasn't really taken off is because the security isn't yet good enough. Right. But if they crack that, then uh, there's a serious debate to be had. And the final big challenge to democracy, I think, is the idea of artificial intelligence. You know, we already trust AI systems to trade stocks and shares on our behalf and to diagnose our lung cancers, which they do better than human oncologists, diagnose our melanomas, our skin cancers, which they do better than the best dermatologists. It's not crazy to suppose that digital systems might be used to make public policy decisions in the future in certain realms and do it better than human beings. We might, well, you might start with an AI system in your pocket that recommends to you how to vote based on the data that it has about you, which is far richer than the data you communicate with a tick in a box once every five years. There's three million books worth of information in the world for every person. That's a very rich portrait, which systems could actually process and tell you what your real lived experience tells you ought to be in your interest, as well as listening to you when you tell it what your values are and the like. So you could have an AI voting on your behalf. You could have it advising you. You could have it voting on your behalf a thousand times a day, um, saying what you feel about different policies or what's likely to be in your interests. And you could have you know, the local traffic system run by AI, the local water distribution board, whatever it is. But certainly the big, one of the big debates in politics, I think, is going to be what is best done by digital systems and what is best left to human beings. Interestingly, in countries where the state is smaller, um, like the United States, algorithms are already used to perform what, what we in Britain might regard as governmental functions. So for instance, your access to health care in America is largely determined by whether you can get health insurance and on what terms. The weather question has, has um, become less prominent over the last few years. But the terms in which you get health insurance are themselves largely determined, not largely, increasingly determined by algorithms. So we use those systems to distribute something as fundamental as access to health care which, to my mind, is a political exercise of technology. I mean, I, I, healthcare is something fundamental that all of us would need, and how it is distributed in society <clears throat> seems to me to, 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 it is strange to leave it down to algorithms, which are often black boxes that you can't see or understand. So uh, the internet's changed things. Uh, we've got some problems with deliberation just now, but the big challenges in the future, I think, are, are, are going to be kind of philosophical challenges to the way that we currently govern ourselves. How do we deliberate? How should we be voting on everything? And what's the role of non-human systems in human governance? And um, I mean, throughout all of the ways in which you, you think tech's changing politics, there's two, there's two sources of power. I mean, not sources of power, two, uh, two, two types of powerful organizations. One is the government. Um, we discussed the law enforcement thing where um, you know, you're, you're not allowed to, your car automatically pulls over when the police come along. Um, and the other source of power, the other big source of power is the tech firms. Hmm. Um, if Facebook, for example, is, if, if, data, if data is political, as you say, and Facebook is essentially the public square, should we nationalize Facebook? 
Anyone familiar with CapEx will know that this is not my view, but, um, but no, but that is, you know, that, is, that is arguably the implication of lots of what you're saying, is that these things are too important to be left to private companies. Well, uh, they might also be too important to left to the state. Uh, Good answer. The, <laughs> I know my audience. Um, <laughs> let me pick up on a couple of things. Yeah. Um, when we describe Facebook as like, as like the public square or like the, a utility company, or as some people would say, it's like a new kind of state, we expose the problem that I mentioned at the beginning, which is that we don't actually have the political vocabulary to describe what Facebook is. We haven't developed a word to describe it yet. Because in truth, Facebook is none of those things. It's a little bit like a state in that it exerts power, but in many respects, it's nothing like a state. It doesn't have any sovereign territory or anything like that. You could say it's like a public utility, but you know, when did the water company affect your perception of the world or get you to do things you wouldn't otherwise do? And you could say it's like the public square, but in, and that encapsulates one aspect of what happens on Facebook, but it certainly doesn't encapsulate all of it. And so one of the things in the, I say in the book is that we need to develop, and I try to, rather than just moaning about it, we need to develop a more sophisticated political vocabulary to describe what Facebook actually is. But what I say about the 21st century is that there's going to be this great big battle between the technology firms where these technologies of power are generated and owned and controlled, and the tech firms will increasingly like, as I say, to write their own rules that the rest of us, one way or another, might have to follow, and the states which seek to control um, those technologies, sometimes for good reasons and sometimes for bad. And the truth is there's a spectrum. So at one end of the spectrum, you've got the full China, where in technological terms, the distinction between the public and the private sector is almost nil, that all of the powerful benefits of technology, almost all of them accrue to the Chinese state, such that if you use WeChat, which is a, you know, a, a chat app equivalent to maybe WhatsApp, and, and, you, and I send a message to you saying the words Amnesty International, that message never arrives because uh, it's censored midway. And the Chinese government has managed to co-opt that power. At the other end, you have something like when Apple refused to surrender the passwords to the iPhone of the San Bernardino terrorist. That's to say the state says, we want to use this technology which has gathered all this data about this person to enforce the law. And Apple said, no, do it yourself. And then the state, of course, eventually dropped its lawsuit against Apple because it managed to hack into the system, or at least everyone else imagines that's why, it that's why it dropped its lawsuit. So then you're back here more actually towards the China model. You've got the state coercively using its power and its resources to get uh, the power of technology on its side. In Perhaps over here somewhere, you have Google automatically reporting to the state when people search for... Um, terms relating to child pornography. So if you type in child porn, uh, the US government will know about it. And that's something that Google freely agrees to do with the US government. So that's a kind of free cooperation. Then you have commercial exchanges where there are firms in America whose sole purpose is to gather data from various sources and sell it to the US government for the purposes that I described earlier. It's unconstitutional in the United States to gather data on that level. It's not unconstitutional, believe it or not, to buy it. So you have that kind of combination there. So right from the full China through to the sort of um, plucky upstart tech firm resisting the overbearing state, you've got a variety of, you know, a constellation of different ways that, these, that the power could play out. The reason I'm not, uh, I'm not someone who, who, although otherwise perhaps might be inclined to argue for more regulation and more nationalization, 
there are two reasons why I, I, I don't inherently. One is for the, the one already given, because the Gladstones out there barely know what's going on, let alone you know, are in a position to write laws. Of course, what that really means is in the United States, the laws will be written for, literally written for them by the tech companies. Yep. That's how it works. They turn up with draft <coughs> legislation. You know, if you have Senator Orrin Hatch asking Mark Zuckerberg, how does Facebook make money without charging its members? He's one of the hundred senators. I mean, he's one of the most senior legislators in the country. Yeah. He doesn't know the answer to that. But the second reason is that states, and you, don't need, you guys don't need me to tell you this, but states themselves are great agglomerations of power. And the reason I would not want the state to nationalize Facebook is because, um, first of all, it would probably end up destroying it. But even if it didn't, the power of perception control that Facebook has, the power of scrutiny, the amount of data that it has about all of us, and God knows what hardware Facebook will control in the future that it can set rules for the rest of us through. I wouldn't want that to be held by the state either in an unregulated so way. One thing you don't say enough, I think, in the book actually is that like these two bits of power actually, they obviously don't cancel each other out, but they have the potential to um, chip away at one another. And so... The, the private power and the public power are, you know, diminish each other's each other's power. I mean, in, in, in the case of the, the do, do the, they do they diminish though? I mean, well, they at least have the potential to. I mean, you said there's a spectrum of there's a spectrum of outcomes. One is the, the sort of nightmarish Chinese one, and the other. Sure. Isn't it? But but even with the San Bernardino example yeah. over here, where the tech firms are resisting the state, the fact that the state is ultimately able to hack into yeah. that, the, the very existence of those technologies will lead to what. Uh, in my view, will lead to what I call the supercharged state. I just think, mm-hmm. one way or another, the state is going to get its hands on these technologies, whether using them indirectly, like in the Google example, commercially, like in the data example, illegally, like in the hacking example, or um, constitutionally, like in the Chinese example. So actually, I, I don't necessarily see it as a zero-sum game. I think tech firms are going to get more powerful, states are going to get more powerful, and it's down to citizens to try and find ways of limiting both of them. And um, another thing I sort of found myself thinking a lot reading the book was uh, whether you actually, Jamie, were guilty of some faster horses thinking in, in your own in your no own doubt. book, which is uh, uh, all the, when you when you when you write about the tech the, the tech firms, obviously sometimes you're explicitly talking about existing ones, um, uh, but even when you're not, we're thinking in terms of broadly speaking the the current tech giants, right? So Google, Facebook, mm. Amazon, and so on. Um, to, to what extent do you think that like the, the, fact, the, the fact that they've got the competitive they've got the dominant market position now means that they will have that in 20 30 years time because you know you are describing in the book this amazing disruption we're, we're about to go through so one of the things that you would think would follow from that would be that the same firms that are on top of the hill now won't be on top of the hill yeah in 20 30 years time and so if that's true isn't that always true? I mean, is, you know, to what extent is the power of those firms um, good? How, you know, how powerful will those firms really be over the long term? There are... So... The... the uh, I'll dodge your allegation of faster horses for a moment, <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll hopefully let my answer speak for itself, and the answer is this. There are inherent structural reasons why tech firms are likely to end up being huge and monopolies. Mm-hmm. One is that they rely on network effects. So what makes Facebook really, really valuable is not the nice purple interface or the like function. It's the fact that 2 billion people use it. 
And that makes it valuable to Facebook because it has an enormous amount of data on which to train its AIs and to learn about human life. And it makes it valuable to us because everyone you'd ever want to know is on Facebook, mostly. So if you and I came up with a new social network idea tomorrow, mm -hmm. and it was better than Facebook objectively in every single way, it would still be commercially useless because just you and I would be members sure. of it. So because of network, and the same is, with, same is true with Google, the reason Google's such a good search engine is because 60,000 people use it every second. And so it, it is possible that Eric Schmidt is right when he says that competition for Google is just a click away. But in all likelihood, that competition would itself, because of the structural reasons, likely it's be likely itself to become a monopoly in due course. Right, but just on that quickly, the, sure. the interesting question is not, to me, is not, is Facebook the big social media platform for the next 20 years? It's, does that advantage mean it has advantages in all these new areas of technology, right? So like the, the Uber kind of thing is, um, we're the best minicab company in the world, but we're not really a minicab company, we're a company that's capable of doing lots of other things. So yeah. that power in what, like the power as a search engine, your view, I presume, is that it becomes power that will apply to new technologies we but, aren't but using But it's, it's already happening. I mean, isn't it, it just go into Google, go into Google and Google what companies Google has bought in the last mm -hmm. 12 months, and you will see that most of them have nothing to do with search. Right, right. So it's driving technology, it's iris recognition technology. The, the models that are being built in Silicon Valley, the business models, are of companies that are so colossal that they buy all the innovative and interesting tech uh, hardware and software companies out there. Now, I, again, you know, in the book, I do say that we might need some regulation to break up tech mm -hmm. firms, and I don't, therefore, and I actually see that as one of the ways that we might avoid some of the conclusions that might otherwise be reached. But Facebook long ceased to be a social network. The, the primary significance of Facebook lies just now in its Arctic data science labs, where it is training machine learning systems to detect patterns about human life that have never been before detected. And God knows where that will take them. But it certainly won't be limited to posting pictures of your birthday party and liking them. The philosophical and political significance of Facebook is way, way, way beyond mm -hmm. that. Just like Uber already not satisfied with being a taxi platform, but are developing self-driving cars. Mm -hmm. In fact, to destroy the very industry that they initially started with. Uber's probably the least ambitious example. Google's another one. Uh, I mean, why is Mark Zuckerberg flying... Um, <laughs> hot air balloons over Africa giving them Wi-Fi. That's, that's already way out of his original kind of social media. And, and just to get a sense of how big these companies are, the entire British tech industry, the entire British tech industry is somewhere between the value of Netflix uh, and the value of Apple, and, but much closer to Netflix. Um, our entire tech industry. And there are... There are Tens of enormous tech companies in the world that are now just so far ahead in terms of their size that it's very, very difficult for others to catch up. I don't say anything's inevitable. You know, my, my, you know I suspect that one of Google, Facebook, um, Microsoft, Apple, <coughs> you know, some of them will be extinct relatively soon. I don't know why. It's hard to say mm -hmm. why. But they'll be replaced by the next thing. And the network effects inherently mean a lot of the time, uh, that they will tend towards largeness. Right, I think I've hogged more than enough time. So uh, does anyone have any questions? And like I said, questions, not speeches. <laughs> I think you were first. Um, quick question. Um, it's about 
the number of people that use Twitter, there are probably 40 million people who voted in the Brexit referendum. Mm -hmm. How many of them were affected by your bots and how many of them use Twitter? Because I think it's a very small percentage. Well, um, let's, just, let's, just, let's just break that down. Uh, I think it would be naive to look at one political decision and look at one social media platform and look at one form of influence on that social media platform, be it bots or whatever, and say that it decisively changed the outcome of that election, which is not a claim that I make. It's not a claim that I make. And it's actually not a claim that anyone can plausibly make. You the numbers, you've talked a lot about data. So how many people use Twitter? I, 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 I don't know offhand how many people use Twitter. You don't Twitter know how many people use Twitter. In this country, no. You don't know how many followers Theresa May has or... Well, that's a different fewer, fewer than Jeremy Coulter. Yeah. I know that. <laughs> that's a different question. Not fewer, but I think it's significantly lower than any influence that you well, But I guess your point so would be also that we're at the start of a curve, right? That this would be... Sorry. It, 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 my unwillingness to, to give you an answer in relation to a particular figure of the number of people who work on Twitter, because I don't want to get it wrong, is not going to detract from the broader argument, which is this. More than half of Americans get their news from social media. Of those, of, if you'll let me finish just for a moment, of those, most of them get it from Facebook. And the top 20 news stories in the last presidential election, as I said, that were fake news stories, as compared to the top 20 stories from the Washington Post and the New York Times and the like, yeah. were equally read. Yeah, but I know a lot of people who don't use Facebook anymore. I know my own three grown-up children don't use Facebook for any kind of media. They use BBC, they might use their friends and, and various different websites that they follow, but they don't use Facebook. I'm but not did you, you said you knew your audience. Why don't you ask the audience how many people are here? Facebook's over. Facebook's over. <laughs> Guys, <laughs> if you think that because Facebook, because, sorry, first of all, Facebook has more global users than it has ever had, and the number is growing for rapidly. Communication, but not for reading the news. Facebook is the only way that people in Burma get their news, and it's the main way that the majority of Americans get their news. I don't make any empirical claim about what happened in the Brexit referendum or indeed what happened in the Trump referendum. I think if you look at the next 10 or 20 years and you say things like, well, Facebook's over, none of this is going to happen, the trend of the last 20 years, and I predict for the next 20 years, and you may disagree, is that more and more people are going to get their news from automated and digital means. Okay. If you disagree, uh, then you will disagree with a lot of stuff in the book. That's yeah, fair. I do, yeah. Let's let's move. Any, any other questions? Anyone on this side of the room? Uh, yeah. Let's. Uh, just wondering about um, you talk about the power of tech companies. I was wondering if you saw any potential for sort of devolving that power down to a more individual level. Sure. Like blockchain. Mm. Blockchain is interesting, um, and there are certain. There are, there's some interesting stuff recently that's come out about blockchain that says that if it carries on in the way that it's going, it's going to destroy the planet because of the amount of power that it uses. So I think it can, in some respects, be an overhyped technology. One of the big things that I argue for is transparency. So one of the big problems we have with tech, with something like Twitter, is that you don't, no one, including civic-minded individuals, can see how the algorithms work, which is why we didn't know until Jack Dorsey turned up to Congress uh, and told Congress that his algorithm, had in a, he's the chief executive of Twitter, had inadvertently downgraded 600,000 accounts uh, from the public consciousness, including the accounts of some politicians who were actually standing for re-election at that time, with consequences which 
it was generally agreed probably affected the outcome of those elections. The first time we knew about that was when Jack Dorsey came to Congress and told them. Whereas I think if Twitter's al algorithm had just a little bit more transparency, a little bit more visibility, I mean, there, there are obviously difficulties with reading algorithms and understanding what they mean, but right now they're all commercial black boxes. So one of the things that I say is that as with in previous stages of human history, um, if, if important new sources of power are erected over your head, then one way to, to, to achieve more power for the people below is at least just to expose them to sunlight, which is why we ask that our legislative processes are conducted by and large in public. Um, and it's why we develop laws which allow us to ask for data and information about what's going in the heart of government as well. So if we think that important decisions and important systems and processes are taking place within tech firms, one way to empower the rest of us is to try and make them more, more transparent. One of the diff difficulties with that, though, is that there are actually relatively few people who are in a position to hold those tech firms to account by understanding those systems. But, you know, opening up to journalists, to data journalists, to critical hackers and the like would seem to me to be a positive first step. Another way would be to prevent companies from, from acquiring so much political power in the first place through the means of force and the means of scrutiny and the means of perception control that I described earlier, um, through structural reforms, which prevent any monopoly from taking place across all of those. And I don't think our current competition law or antitrust law in the States is well suited to deal with that, because what it really deals with is abuses of economic power but these companies don't really abuse us economically. In fact, they give us great products for free in exchange for data, which for us would be worthless, but for them, combined with other data, is valuable. Um, well, not worthless, but not worth very much. You know, it's said that your entire Facebook profile is worth about 100 quid. Uh, and can, I, can I ask a quick specific yeah. question on this? Do you, do you feel kind of, uh, some people argue that we're sort of basically being exploited for our data, and mm. that, you know, there's this policy uh, solution that's maybe there's sort of, basic income we can all get in exchange for our, there's some sort of outlandish policy suggestions to do that. Do you think that's the right way of thinking about that? I don't. I, I mean, I personally don't conceive of the, the issue of data. I don't think the principal problem is economic. Mm -hmm. I think that what we get in exchange for our data in economic terms is kind of remarkable. The problem I have with it is that it leads often to political consequences. So the data you give for one, less, less of a problem here in Europe, but the data you give a company for one purpose ends up being used by another company for another purpose, which you may not know about and you may not have consented to or given your permission for. And so my book tries to shift some of the emphasis away from complaining about the economics of it to complaining about the politics of it. I would also say, you know, from a social justice perspective, it's not immediately clear to me why we should be, why data is something we should be paid for. Um, you know, you might be a person of particular interest to advertisers, whereas I'm not, which means that you would get a little nano payment every time your data was processed and I would, I would be poor. And, you know, I think a lot of people would do well to pause and recognize that that's not necessarily a just distribution right. of, of wealth. The basic income question I see is a slightly separate one, maybe related to technological unemployment, which is something else that I look at in the book. But if it is the case that, you know, a large number of people doesn't need to be 100%, but 20 or 30 of people lose their jobs in the next 100 years because they're done more efficiently by machines, then you might have to change what the welfare system looks like. Any other questions? Yep. I think what's, um, 
sort of similar to you know what's going to challenge this, but just to take the same question a bit deeper, I think most of us in this room subscribe to classically liberal beliefs and freedom of the individual to take risks and for for the greater good. You're behind enemy lines there, Jamie. <laughs> Dangerous free marketeers. Are... But and, and I, I am part of that system, and I've sure. recently a company I, I run invested in two AI companies servicing AI. We're all caught up in this belief. And yet it is that very engine of individualism that seems to be creating the enemy and the battle that you foresee, and I foresee too. Mm. And I wonder, you know, we are creating the monster that we are fighting. I believe, thoroughly agree that we are facing that battle. We're yeah. in it and we're going to be increasingly in it. But does that mean that we have to go so deep to our fundamental beliefs to actually the, the concept of competition mm is so deep in us that do we actually have to challenge that? If you can answer that question, I'll be really impressed. Well, the, 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 I think you start with a very profound observation, which is that a lot of the difficulties with caused by tech, and this is, go, this is not going to sound like a, a classically liberal point, a lot of the difficulties of tech are because that technology works according to, to the logic of the market. So if you think about um, the dissemination of information in society, what is good for clicks and attention uh, you know, might be stuff that is lurid or sensationalist or even false. And those who are in the business of trying to get people to look at their information, operating according to market principles, are likely, therefore, to allocate it on that basis. But what's good for democracy might be something else, a different flow of information, which is more balanced and more representative and the like. And so the logic of politics and the logic of economics or the logic of the market are not always the same thing. And of course, that's been, the, that's been the case with lots of different industries throughout time. And there's no doubt, of course, that what you need the logic of the market, market for and competition for is the generation of new businesses and new ideas and new technologies. Competition, I think, is an interesting word because actually the tech industry is more often accused of being anti-competitive these days than it is of being individuals. You know, I think maybe 20 years ago in Silicon Valley, maybe even a little longer ago, you might have said it accorded more to a sort of free market ideal. But really, when you start a tech startup these days, the best you can hope for, the 99% of the time, is to be bought. It's to be bought by a big company halfway through. And uh, whether, therefore, we have the worst of both worlds, the sort of not really the full rigor of the market, because, by the way, also, a lot of the problems that I describe in the book would be, best, would be fixed if there was more choice and people could move from one platform to another or one product to another more easily. So you don't, you don't have that. You don't have that market benefit, but you also don't have a fully kind of politicized system where stuff is engineered for the social good or for the common good. So I think we're sort of stuck in a middle ground where, we're, where the market isn't fully working, but the political system has yet to kind of get its, its So, so it's perhaps here. it's the nationalization of the data rather than... Facebook or Google. That's an interesting question. Whether nationalization or perhaps holding it in a commons, no one should own it. Yes. Mm. Uh, or, I mean, there are so many interesting and new ways that we might think about it. And data is, of course, interesting because your use of a piece of data doesn't stop my use of it. Yes. And we can share it in a way that is, is different. It doesn't necessarily apply to hardware, servers, and the like. And, you know, there might be an argument that there should be a kind of municipal cloud computing facility so that everyone can benefit from the data. That yes. might be something that's best owned by the state. But you need to be getting down into the nitty-gritty, the granular arguments about how you restructure the economy to get the best economic outcomes and the best political outcomes. Data is very interesting. Yes. Any other questions? 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. At the very back. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I, I, I don't want to be a facetious about it. I do think someone like Matt Hancock is great on this stuff. I, I, he's not someone I know personally, uh, and, um, but he's one of the guys, and yes, he sometimes you know, people perceive him as over-enthusiastic, but I do think he gets it uh, in this country. Um, I think Tony Blair understands it. Belatedly, I don't think he necessarily uh, focused that much on it during his time as Prime Minister. But if you look at the stuff that comes out of his institute, by and large, I think it recognizes the scale of the change that's taking place. Uh, I think in the United States, there are some lower-profile politicians, particularly in California, who do understand this stuff. Um, and perhaps more importantly, staff, uh, politicians with staff who understand it. So Diane Feinstein in California just introduced a bill for the regulation of bots into the US Senate, and it's really, I think it's really well drafted, and whoever wrote that for her knows their, knows their beans. Um, in the tech world, there's a book coming out next year by um, a guy who used to be a, a major investor figure and has become a sort of defector called Zucked, where he goes through a lot of the people who he, he knew personally, Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, and the like, and I think reaches some conclusions about them which are unflattering in terms of <laughs> how, they, how they are tackling the moral burden which they seem to have inadvertently assumed for themselves. Um, I think Twitter's Jack Dorsey is a really thoughtful guy and a well-meaning guy, uh, even if he's got some decisions wrong in the past, which I think he, he might have done. Um, there, are lots of, there are lots of people in the sort of smaller startup world who are well-versed in it. You know, the head of the company entrepreneur first here, a guy called Matt Clifford, uh, is someone, uh, definitely someone to watch in the kind of nexus of the, of the business and tech world. He totally gets the social implications of the work that he and his protégés are churning out. So there are some. Um, the trouble is, 
There are very few places to study to become that person. We in this country should have a Kennedy School of Government just for the study of the effects of technology on public policy. Mm. There's no reason why we, should, why we couldn't be a world leader in it, where people from all over the world come here to learn how best to govern technology and how not to be subject to it in a way that is going to be a global problem. But what do we have? You know, you have an optional ethics course at the end of your three-year degree at MIT in computer science. You have the Berkman Klein Center in Harvard, where I was a fellow, which is, which is great, but it's very rare. Uh, you have places like the Oxford Internet Institute that are beginning to do really pioneering work on watching bots and the like, but which are, you know, by its nature, and because of some of the limitations of the university structure, limited. So what amazes me is that we don't have a bigger industry around learning about this stuff. But maybe it's just because, as a generation, I don't think we've caught up to the challenge yet. But Tony, by the way, Tony, Tony Blair's a good example of politics being behind tech, because I think, I think I'm right. I'm going to get it slightly wrong. I think I'm right in saying Gordon Brown was the first prime minister to send an email. That's right. Tony, so, Blair, so never Tony Blair never sent an email. Prime minister. Yeah. And he was, that was, I mean, that's amazing, isn't it, that, how late yeah. that was? He the risk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, sure, the back. Yeah, and one thing... Springs mind when you talk about this is, is it's not just a national issue. You talk about governments and politics. It's an international issue. Mm. Some people are using it for aggressive warlike techniques. Yes. And resolving it is it can't be a national, an individual nation's solution. It's going to have to be international because this data is borderless, isn't it? Well, um, yes and no. I mean, to answer your question directly, this stuff would definitely be best be regulated at a international level. No doubt about it which is why, even if you disagree with some of the substance of it, the GDPR at the EU level is actually such a unique example of the regulation of technology. The right to be forgotten, which we have in Europe and they just don't have in the United States. The fact that Google here pays massive antitrust fines and doesn't in the United States. So the EU has proven to be the most effective block for regulating technology. Not, said, not so many big tech firms in the US. Yeah. Yeah. You would, would be the criticism. Absolutely, that is the trade-off, and we can talk about that if you like, and, and I do think it is a very valid point. That said, I, I sometimes think that we look at the international challenge of uh, regulating technology almost as an excuse not to do it at the national level. And the truth is, if you use Twitter in Germany, you will never see a swastika, and you will never see Holocaust denial, because in that country it's a crime, and the German government said to Twitter, sort it out, and they did. And when California, sorry, when the US Senate, if it ever comes to pass, introduces this law around bot advertising, um, America will be better protected against that than we will be. And I don't think it will destroy Silicon Valley or the like. You, you are right um, that some regulation of technology has the effect of dampening um, competitive growth of technologies. And, and Europe is way behind the United States when it comes to the development of um, big businesses relating to technology. I don't think that's necessarily because of historic regulation, actually, because actually data regulation in this, in this continent is relatively young in comparison to the broader trends. So I don't think it's the only excuse, but I do think it's a valid point. Any other questions? I think you I'm interested, this is a simple question, but uh, just on balance, do you think the GDPR thing is a good thing or a bad thing? I, I'm going to say I think it's a good thing because 
and I, so in my in my day to day life, I'm a, I'm actually a barrister, and so I, I've had to actually read the GDPR. And let me tell you, it's extremely boring. <laughs> um, but it is. Just a short version. It is. I'll begin. Yeah, I'll be exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, you're going to ask me if I know every provision. I don't. I can tell you that. I can tell you that to for starters. Um, but what the GDPR does and is is something that many of our friends in America would find unimaginable, which is that it sets out rules for how data that is gathered about you may be stored, how it may be transferred to other people for purposes other than the purpose for which it was gathered the circumstances in which it can lawfully be sent out of the jurisdiction, so beyond Europe. And there is no doubt that there are problems with it, some of which will be resolved at the judicial level as you iron out you know, what the law means and the amb ambiguity, and some of which will be resolved at the policy level with subsequent changes to the law. But it is the first, I believe it's the first, or at least it's the, probably the most impressive global example of a group of countries saying, we have a unified system of rules about how data can be used and shared. And there is no doubt that we are better protected here from some of the stuff that I describe as a result. There's some concern which I heard uh, a smattering of that there's a, there's endangering free speech. Um, That's interesting. On what basis? Um, things that people could publish on, for example, YouTube. Um, that they would have to pay a copyright fee or something. Can I think, I th well, I don't know exactly what you're getting at, but there may be, I, I wouldn't hesitate for a second to say that we have less free speech in Europe under our legal regime here than they do in the United States under the First Amendment. That's just a, a different legal background structure. Mm -hmm. So here, for instance, you can criminalize hate speech and you can criminalize Holocaust denial, whereas that would be unconstitutional in the United States. Mm -hmm. And our copyright laws, I think, can be stronger yeah. because uh, we have fewer limitations on, sorry, we have few limitations on the limitations that can be placed on the use and flow of data. Interesting cultural difference between us and the States. There's some, some uh, arguments which were saying that the monopoly, only the big companies would, would have a monopoly on, on news, whereas mm -hmm. yeah, obviously you want to protect it from being fake news, for sure. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the, the GDPR, the, the regulation that was imposing on somebody which is going to uh, re-present a YouTube video would be too restrictive. I don't know the exact case, yeah. and um, as I've already shown tonight, well, to even in the face of criticism, I'm not going to comment on something I don't know. <laughs> uh, Over to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I'm not going to say Gallant. Yes. If you had a referendum, for instance, in which there was a yes or no answer, mm -hmm and both sides had equal access to data and the capacity to crunch it. Who would win? And if you don't know who would win, why is it a problem? Um, I didn't follow that question. Okay. Do you want to try? Have another crack, I'm sorry. I'm sure it's okay, there are two sides, one proposing one answer to the referendum, uh -huh. one the other. Uh -huh. And they are equally using as much data as they can get their hands on. Yeah. Pushing their case. Mm -hmm. Well, whoever it is or whatever it is. But why is that a problem? Is that, there, there's no implicit answer as to who's going to win. Sure. Unless you think it's the Russians. Perhaps, but leaving aside that, I mean, sure. why what is that a problem? Matter? Sure. Well, you've got the why is it a problem and why does it matter? Um, there are... 
some problems and there are some non-problems. One problem, uh, potential problem, which I think you were removing through your question, is the idea that in some circumstances there, are, there might be an inequality of arms, but that might just be a temporary. An inequality of arms. If one side or one group uh, has greater access to data, or more money, it might yeah. be able to... If, but that, in a sense, that, that's always been the case in politics. Problem number two is we've had a problem with the spread of misinformation, and I recognise that that's not the point you're making, but that's, that's the second problem that people identify. Problem number three is that it is arguably problematic in an open society for people to use data to direct... Uh, advertisements at the individual micro-targeted level in a way where, as a society, we're unable to see which arguments are being made to which people. There's at least an argument to be made that that's bad for discourse, that if you make an argument, you should make it publicly um, rather than just onto, just onto the Facebook feed of one person or the Twitter feed of one person who reads it. So it does interesting things to discourse. It fragments it. And as I've said, once you get more fragmented, you can get more polarised. I actually don't necessarily argue that we shouldn't live in a, a world where data is able to be used to send us messages which we are likely to hear. But what I, I would be keen to avoid a situation where, like for instance, in the 2016 election, we, we can never know which, which adverts were actually directed at people in the United States. So we don't actually know what people saw. To me, that makes a mockery of the idea of public deliberation, as the Greeks would have imagined it, where you turn up to the forum your face is revealed, and you make an argument, and it succeeds or fails on the basis of what the public think of it. That's very different from filtering a message into someone's bedroom straight into their face, and then that message disappearing into the ether immediately afterwards. So I'm not saying it destroys, I'm not saying it ruins, I'm not saying it's going to kill public discourse, but I do think it's something that you need to look at closely to make sure that it's consonant with what we imagine a democracy to be. Okay, one more question, if there are any other questions. Uh, yeah. I just have a quick question. You mentioned the right to be forgotten. Uh, yes. It's probably quite an appealing concept for a lot of people. <laughs> some some governments might be able to manipulate that. I mean, Russia might love the idea of forgetting traces of information. How do you perceive that um, that working out in, in practice? Uh, well, uh, the the right to be forgotten. I don't know how extensively governments use it, or indeed if they even can I, use I it. I think it's very much informative. Yeah. At the moment, but it, I, I think if it was progressed and that was a genuine tool that we would be able to use, I could see that that would be misused like for any other purpose. Sure. I mean, the right to be forgotten, as I understand it, is basically a, a system whereby you can write to a search engine and, forgive me, have certain results removed. It doesn't actually necessarily... It doesn't remove the... If you click on that result, it goes through to a website. You're not removing the website. You're removing the position on the search engine result that appears yeah. when you search for your name. So it's if and you understand why people want it, you do something stupid when you're 20, and then that's the first thing that comes up on Google when you're 40, and you've tried to move on. Um, if I may make the broader philosophical point underpinning your question, those who control the flow of data and information, what remains and what is destroyed and what is seen and what remains unseen, they are powerful, yeah. whether they are states and whether they are companies or whether it's both working together. Um, that's the broad answer to a more narrow question. But on that you know, cheery note, uh, <laughs> can we all give, give Jamie a round of applause? Thank you. Thank you.
That was Jamie Suskind on Future Politics. Thanks for listening.